American graffiti. Where were you in 62? Like most kids that grew up in the valley, I had a strong interest in cruising. When I got to college and I actually studied a lot of anthropology, I began to realize that that was a uniquely American mating ritual uh, involving automobiles. I came up with the idea of doing the movie. It was in the 60s. It was, you know, the hippie culture, drugs, cruising was gone. And I really felt compelled to sort of document the whole experience of cruising and, and what my generation uh, used as a as a way of meeting girls and what we did in our spare time. I wanted to uh, document the end of an era, how things change, how uh, one of the life passages, how you go from being a student into the real world and you leave your hometown, you leave your family, you leave everything behind and you go off on your own and um, parallel that with what was going on in the United States at that time in terms of loss of innocence, getting into the Vietnam War, and generally uh, issues that centered around the idea of change. Oh, can't stand it, man. I can dig it. It's one of those great old movies about romance, racing, and rock and roll. Oh, American graffiti. Where were you in 62? This is Jason. And this is Gabe. And this week, we are finally celebrating the 50-year anniversary of George Lucas's second feature film, the one that paved the way for it all, The Great American Graffiti. Finally! Like, we've been just randomly talking about American Graffiti for the 32 years that we've been doing this podcast. Well, and we even did a Patreon episode about more American graffiti. But not American graffiti. <laughs> the original. The one that if it wasn't for this movie, there would not be Star Wars. We'll get to it one day. And hey, that one day is here. Finally. We made it. Released in August of 1973. Set in 1962. 
when we were getting ready for this episode, I was like, man, that's crazy that like 73 to 62, it's not that long. And then I was thinking about it. It would be like a movie coming out this year, 2023, being all nostalgic about 2012. Yeah. I can't even remember anything that happened in 2012. <laughs> Other than 20, that was the world was supposed to end, right? Because of the Mayan calendar. So maybe there was a movie called 2012 that came out in 2012, right? Maybe there is some stuff to have about uh, we nostalgic for 2012. I was thinking somebody could make a whole movie about the night that we all learned about the Lucasfilm sale to Disney. <laughs> With all the hit music from 2012 as we're driving around thinking about what? There's going to be an episode 7, 8, and 9? You know, what's funny is that is probably the most like makes the most sense to try to imagine what it was like seeing American graffiti in 73 and being nostalgic for 62, because it's like as a star Wars thing, like thinking back to like pre Disney, it is kind of almost like there was pre Disney star Wars. And then there was after Disney star Wars. And it was like after 2012 when Disney bought star Wars, the world changed, you know, like it kind of, it kind of puts it in perspective and it can, you can kind of be nostalgic for it because every everything was like different then. Star Wars was over. <laughs> Our lives were like the end of American Graffiti. We were moving on to new adventures. <laughs> At the end of this 2012 movie, it could we just fly off in a plane and our faces come up like yearbook photos. Gabe and Jason started a podcast and now they've done 381 episodes. They did an episode about Starcade. There was so much Star Wars stuff. They never could watch it all before they died. <laughs> and then the Beach Boys comes on. Yeah. And, and the pictures of our faces just explode. So we're going to be talking a lot about American Graffiti how it led to Star Wars, of course. But, you know, the thing, too, one of the things starting out talking about the movie, because we both rewatched it this week. And, of course, there's obvious real-world reasons why, without American Graffiti, there would not be Star Wars. But for people like us watching it now, if watching this movie in, like, 2023 – it's almost a sci- as much of a science fiction movie as Star Wars or THX-1138 is because it's another world. It's another culture. People don't talk like this anymore. Things don't look like that anymore. It's like what Lucas talks about all the time about how he wanted Star Wars to feel like a foreign film, how you're just dropped into a culture that you don't really understand. And that's almost kind of watching American Graffiti now. Because we we don't know anything about like the late fifties, early sixties, and cruising, and that music that is the backbone of that entire movie seems very dated and not familiar to us at all. It's it's like how Lucas talks about how he felt watching Kurosawa in film school. How he loved this was like it's a culture I just know nothing about. You could say the same thing about Star Wars, and you could say the same thing now about American Graffiti. Yeah, except for the other thing that's so great is other than like it feeling like a different culture, I think of all of the George Lucas movies, like this is the one that's most relatable to people. Because even though like the music's 
strange and the way they dress and talk is strange. The stuff they're doing is kind of like stuff I did when I was a teenager. And I think a lot of people did as a teenager and still do as a teenager. So it's kind of like people can relate to this movie, even if it is practically a science fiction movie at this point. But even 50 years later, like it just feels like teenagers doing teenager stuff. And that hasn't ever really changed. That, yeah, that's a really good point. And it's maybe George Lucas's only film that stars human beings as the main characters. <laughs> human beings as human beings, yeah. Yeah, there's not a robot in sight. There's no kind of out-of-this-world kind of situation. Nobody's really talking total nonsense. It, it's, it's the only George Lucas movie you could say that about that he directed. It's like in Star Wars, you're on another planet and it's this, you know, yeah, there's aliens and robots and stuff. And, and there's things that, you know, Luke's doing that you can relate to because he's leaving his, his family and going out into the world, like, you know, kind of mythology storytelling stuff that people can relate to. That's timeless where this is like very literally it's kids at a dance. It's kids at a restaurant at night drinking, you know, root beer, like, you know, high school dating stuff and weird teachers like it's kind of stuff that at least in the united states people can relate to because it's like life hasn't changed that much other than you know the the dressing on top of everything music is different now people dress differently now cars look different now but a lot of what people are doing and i think you know lucas has described it i think later on of it being about like teenage mating rituals in the in the 50s you know and and some of that stuff is kind of still the same and very uh i think yeah relatable to people as like oh i i i know what they're doing and uh i remember a similar situation you know in my own life and which you don't necessarily yeah get in thx or phantom menace <laughs> it's it's the only george lucas directed movie that takes place on earth but yeah, we both watched it again this week before we get into the fascinating story on how it got made and it led to everything. This was your second time watching American Graffiti this year, right? Like you saw it in the theater when it had its re-release over the summer, and now we watched it at home to get ready for this, doing this episode. How has American Graffiti grown for you as a Star Wars fan? Because we we all came to American Graffiti after seeing Star Wars, of course. So we were always watching it through that. This is George Lucas's other movie besides THX 138 lens. But how was it for you this week? Yeah. Cause I think the first time I ever saw it at all was like just within the last 10 years, maybe like it took me forever to finally get around to watching it. But now it's definitely one of those movies, the more I watch it, the more I like it and the more I kind of get out of it and enjoy it. So it was actually a lot of fun watching it in the theater because, you know, I'd never seen it in a theater on the big screen. And then now watching it again, it was like even like silly things like I took it took me up until just this last time to like finally catch all the like white T-bird shots of like how many times in the movie he like sees the the blonde in the white car drive by, you know, and not able to go after it. Like that was totally lost on me the first few times watching the movie. Um, other than the first scene where, where she's, you know, he hears her say, I love you. 
But no, it's like, yeah, it's a weird movie. But I think the thing that I really like about it is it it really does like it feels like you're hanging out with everybody in the movie all night. I feel like almost in a way like exhausted when the movie's over because I feel like I've been up all night, like just running around town doing nonsense. Like it really feels like you're in the movie. Movies don't always do that. And it is kind of like in a way it feels very just like a re- like real life, um, which is weird. Yeah. Coming from like Star Wars, which is very much not real life. <laughs> so it's very different in that respect. But also, yeah, it's, you know, it jumps all over the place. There's just crazy things happening and it all kind of comes together in the end. I don't know. Yeah, I've I'm it's really growing on me. Every time I watch it, it makes me appreciate more and more the George Lucas style because I think it's something that with all the the stuff that comes with Star Wars, I think you know what we talk about all the time that he started as an editor and he talks about a lot. We might be talking about it later in this episode. He was, he says he was never really interested in telling stories and narrative film. He was more interested in doing editing montages and the kind of stuff he did in college at USC. Every time I watch it, I'm always like, this is such a bizarre movie because it really doesn't have a clear story but it does you're always you're compelled to keep watching because you're drawn into these very likable characters but like every scene kind of starts like a star wars movie or an indiana jones movie where you're just dropped into a story that seems to be already happening like that's literally every scene in american graffiti you're dropped into conversations like halfway through the conversation and you're kind of always trying to kind of keep up with what's going on with the movie. And it's going back to like George Lucas's kind of documentary goals and kind of what he was studying in school and found so fascinating. It's more like, you know, a fly on the wall kind of documentary of just fouling these people around. Of course, going into it, like I said, from we're Star Wars fans, we're George Lucas fans and, Watching this movie he made before Star Wars, you can say the same thing about THX 1 and 3.8, too. It makes you think about, especially the original film, Star Wars A New Hope, it makes you think about that differently. Where it's like, oh, A New Hope is much more narrative in the way the story is told. There's, There's three acts, there's the beginning, a middle, and end. But it's also kind of weird and lots of stories happening simultaneously and jumping back and forth, very much like American Graffiti. But Star Wars is it's 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 nice because Star Wars is so burned into our brains. Like we have that movie on our permanent mental hard drive. It's hard sometimes to step back and appreciate what an interesting movie that is just in its structure and watching Lucas's other films especially American Graffiti, makes that shine a little bit more, where you're like, there is a Lucas style. He is a very, very interesting filmmaker. Well, and they're and they're very different in ways, too, which it's kind of neat to see the contrast, where, yeah, Star Wars is more, as a story, maybe more, there's more plot and, like, kind of direction to the story, but and it's 
a lot weirder and it's sci-fi and it's kind of crazy, but it's filmed like very, you know, the camera doesn't move a lot and it's very like cinematically filmed. And then you go to American Graffiti where it's like, it's very much the documentary style and, and handheld cameras and it's a lot looser and it almost said a lot of times, yeah, it doesn't look like a movie. It kind of looks like there's just you know, people with a camera, you know, like you would with the documentary. Like it's not composed like a, a lot of movies are. And, and it just has this kind of, it's very almost like raw look to it, which kind of goes with the, the subject matter. And then also, yeah, it's almost like the, uh, you know, Lucas always talking about his tone poems, like, American Graffiti is very much a George Lucas tone poem where it's like it's a, a montage of scenes set to music that loosely relate to each other. And there's loosely a story, but it's a lot of just moments kind of edited together in an interesting way to keep your interest as opposed to being like, yeah, like I'm going to tell you a story and it has a beginning, middle of an end. And this is what's going to happen. It's more just kind of experiencing all these things that are happening around you, which is, I think why it, it really makes me feel like, like I'm up all night hanging out with my friends, just running around town doing nonsense because there's really no rhyme and reason to that. And you just kind of react to what happens and, and just kind of go with the flow. And that's very much how the movie is. And you mentioned the music too. I think that is a big thing with watching this movie and kind of, noticing the things that they have in common and kind of being like, aha, that's the George Lucas style because it runs through all of his movies. Like the music and the sound, Walter Murch's soundscapes or the worldizing as Walter Murch calls it, he, that he did in this movie, the brilliant work that Walter Murch did. Then you think of Star Wars and what Ben Burt did and the John Williams score in Star Wars, it's not that differently used than like the 50s music in American Graffiti and Walter Murch's wall of sound. Just as the 50s music was literally the soundtrack of American Graffiti and you know, symbolizing this, this time that was about to fade away and as we move into another era, and it was perfect for that movie, what Lucas was going for with John Williams, a very old fashioned swashbuckling movie score that wasn't being done in the seventies. The the music in star Wars is wall to wall, just like it is in American graffiti. It's interesting to think about like the three films that George Lucas made kind of the, the original three George Lucas films with, with THX American graffiti and, and the original star Wars of just how much, sound design was such a huge component of all three of them. Cause even going back to THX and the soundscapes in that are like a key part of the movie and kind of something you never really heard before. And then to go into yeah American graffiti and kind of do the same sort of thing, but in a, uh, in a real world context and, and bringing in all that music and then yeah, going to star Wars and kind of mixing the two together and going full on sci-fi, but having a, you know, a symphonic score and just all the sound design. I don't know. Yeah, it's just interesting that how much his career is, you know, he's always been about the sound right from the very beginning and really pushing that as much as anything else in the movies. And you, you talked about the, the original three George Lucas movies and Pablo Hidalgo talks all the time about 
the the perfect trilogy that is THX one one three eight American Graffiti and Star Wars the original film a trilogy a series of films with you know themes that interact with each other and it it does it it's really kind of fascinating because you have THX one three eight in the end it's all about change and him getting out of the THX world into the real world where there's a sun and nature and grass and stuff. It's, it's much more deep and, you know, early seventies and kind of hippie ish in, in its kind of sci-fi way of telling the story. And then American graffiti, again, all about change, leaving one place and going to another, the loss of youth American Graffiti is almost kind of like the darker middle chapter in the trilogy because there's a an impending dread kind of coming on what's going to happen to all these people living kind of this last night of their youth kind of story. And then you have Star Wars, which is a much more kind of positive message about leaving your youth behind and kind of becoming a responsible person. <laughs> Because you have Luke Skywalker, who starts as a farm boy and ends the movie as the hero of the Rebel Alliance. Yeah, and it is just visually too interesting how Star Wars is really kind of a mix between the two. And it's the sci-fi of THX, but made bright and neon and fun, but still dirty and grungy. Like, I don't know. It's just, yeah, it's a, it's the it's the happy THX when I was even when I was rewatching American Graffiti this week, I was thinking about all this stuff, and I'm like, man, talking to Uncle Owen about like Tashi Station and stuff. Like Luke is almost a person in American Graffiti, in the beginning of Star Wars. Like Luke could be running around with all the kids in the '50s. Like, where are we going? We going cruising? All right. Well, I think another kind of cool, you know, I guess George Lucas thing with the with all the movies too is just kind of like the whole like world building aspect of like you know star wars everybody talks about that how you know it just it's sci-fi and it's space but it feels like a, a coherent universe and place um but american graffiti really kind of has that with even though the stories are kind of all over the place it's like you have mel's drive-in which is like c- comes into the story at multiple places with the different characters kind of giving you like a focal point of the town uh and then you know you have the people on the strip you have the woods and then you also have uh the hop dance at the high school and it's kind of neat how they're these you know distinct locations with their own kind of look to them and the different characters kind of going to those different places at different times so you always kind of like feel like you know where everybody is even though you don't necessarily see anybody how they get to any of those places. So it's like almost in your mind, you can like imagine the town. And, and you could say the exact same thing about star Wars, about the original star Wars, because we talk about all the time, you know, when people sat down to watch that movie in the summer of 1977, what were people thinking? You know, they had like, there had been people like, this is the craziest thing I ever saw, but you could, you could, again, yeah, like I said, you could say the exact same thing because it's kind of the genius of that original film that you never feel like, Oh, this is too crazy. I don't even know where people are. I don't know what's going on. 
you know they're going to the Mos Eisley spaceport to find a pilot, but you don't necessarily like how did they get there from where they went? Like how'd they get from one side? How big is Tatooine? Where they how they what what are they? Lucas is just very skilled at even though he said he's not interested in telling stories and narrative filmmaking, he's really good at it though. <laughs> it's told in a way it's told through editing is kind of the, the American graffiti thing. And, and, and it's cool to kind of see, you know, as a star Wars person first, like coming to American graffiti and, and seeing like, Oh, American graffiti is, you know, the end of return of the Jedi or Phantom Menace, the movie where it's just cutting between different stories at the same time. And you kind of realize like, Oh, okay. That's, you know, why he felt like doing that uh, in those movies of like, Hey, I'm going to have these different stories going on at the same time and cutting between them because it's like he had already made a whole movie of that and knew it could work. Well, I was thinking about attack of the clones too, because that's almost the harshest back and forth of Obi-Wan Kenobi's spy missions to Kamino and Geonosis intercut with Anakin and Padme's love story. And you, you just imagine piecing of that together and, Again, yeah, like you said, it's it's his skill with narrative filmmaking is through editing. I guess I was just thinking the end of Phantom Menace where you have the Obi-Wan Qui-Gon Maul duel, the space battle, the Gungan battle, and the Theed City battle all happening at the same time. You go and watch American Graffiti and it's what, four different stories all cutting back and forth. And there's a lot of stuff in a lot of books where they talk about the challenge of piecing together all these different stories and having it work in a way that could make sense for an audience. Like we said, George Lucas, he went to school. He's like, I want to just be an editor. That's what I want. I don't want to make normal movies, but he got somehow roped into making normal movies. But his, his incredible strength as an editor with help from Marsha and with help from a bunch of other people, huge help actually from all those people, yeah, because if anything, it looks in a in a good way, almost like it's like cobbled together. But it's like what they did is not easy to make it all work and make sense and not feel like you have no idea what's going on. Because as much as things are like kind of all over the place, like I never felt like I didn't understand what was happening. Eventually, it all comes together. Which some people would say you can't say that about some Star Wars things. <laughs> yeah, right. But American Graffiti, it all kind of makes sense. America is having a love affair with a movie, American Graffiti. Where were you in 62? Easily the best movie so far this year, New York Times. Sensationally funny, profoundly affecting, Los Angeles Times. A very exciting experience, Family Circle. Super fine, Time Magazine. Four stars, highest rating. By all means, go and enjoy it. New York Daily News. You'll love American Graffiti, rated PG. So, okay, before we get into the making of the movie, like we said, the fascinating story of how it got made, how it led to Star Wars, there, there, there's an interesting thing you discovered, right, with 
the definition of graffiti because that is one thing that I've never really understood what the title means. Yeah, so the title uh, American Graffiti, which you know, the, if you've seen any of the in the stories, uh, Lucas was adamant that that was the title, and there was you know lists and lists of names from everybody else involved in production. Hot night at Hamburger City or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, trying to come up with other titles. And yeah, I admit I'm in kind of in the same boat. I always just thought of, you know, graffiti, the, the very literal definition of like, well, somebody spray painted it on a wall. Um, but there's a great definition um, on Britannica.com, uh, which starts out with, you know, what you would expect. Graffiti is a form of visual communication, usually illegal, uh, involving the unauthorized marking of a public space by an individual or group. So that's kind of what you would think of. But they go on with the definition saying, you know, although the common image of graffiti is a stylistic symbol or phrase spray painted on a wall by a member of a street gang, some graffiti is not gang related. Graffiti can be understood as antisocial behavior performed in order to gain attention or as a form of thrill seeking. But it can also be understood as an expressive art form, which that last sentence kind of sounds like what Lucas was coming from with the movie and, and the characters in the movie and kind of being a teenager, being a teenager is basically antisocial behavior performed in order to gain attention or as a form of thrill seeking. And you can make it into an art form, which, you know, that sounds like American graffiti, the movie. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. Because it's almost like step back and look at what these teenagers are doing. Like the art of being a teenager the art of being young, the art of just driving around trying to find a girl to talk to, <laughs> you know? Yeah, the car, the cars, the music, the street racing. Yeah, it all kind of, you know, I guess that Lucas is a smart guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you found that. And because that just makes me think, too, that much like Star Wars and much like a like kind of a lot of movies that have become famous from the 70s or 80s or something, maybe especially the, the 70s. I mean, I think of this and Star Wars in common where people remember with American Graffiti, oh, the cars and the cruising and the music and the at the hop and all the stuff. And it's almost like Star Wars where it's like, oh, the ships and the the robots and the cool stuff and Darth Vader and stuff. But there's a lot more to both of these movies than the sparkly things on the top of it. There's, there's a lot underneath that have made American graffiti last for 50 years and star Wars last for almost that long now. Yeah. I think if anything, that's the thing I'm finding with this movie, the more I watch it is I almost feel like as much as it was like a big hit with people, you know, when it came out, cause they like remembered, the late fifties, early sixties, it almost seems like it's a better movie now because it's so far removed from that, that when you're watching it, you're not necessarily like, like I don't necessarily care about the cars as like, as much as someone who is like really into cars is. So I think you can kind of appreciate the movie part of the movie more because you're maybe not. So there's like, I don't have nostalgia for the, the early sixties, it's it's just, you know, it might as well be a sci-fi planet at this point. But I think that lets you kind of appreciate 
you know the movie part and the and what story is there and and the characters and just kind of you know like i said like how much you can relate to what's going on 50 years later because being a teenager really hasn't changed well i think that's kind of what we were saying in the beginning too that you know this is george lucas's only movie that's set on earth it's a little less weird in that way but star wars wouldn't last today if people didn't relate to the characters movies do not last at all or do anything if people don't connect with these characters and their the way they're played on screen if people didn't for almost 50 years see themselves in luke skywalker or anakin skywalker or Jin erso or cassian Andor, or ray or it just keeps going and going and going and that's the beautiful thing then no one would care about Star Wars. <laughs> then Star Wars would literally be just spaceships and robots. And there's a lot of movies like that. We love a lot of them, but not a lot of other people do. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. So how did this all come about? How did American Graffiti come about? So as, as everyone knows, THX 1138 was far from being a successful film, even though... It's developed quite a following now, and it, I think it's a great movie. It's weird. Don't ever show it to your wife or girlfriend for a good time. Just don't. Trust me, don't do it. So THX-138, colossal kind of failure. American zoetrope kind of folded because of it. So how did George Lucas go about getting this movie even made? Well, it's an interesting story. But even before he was going to do American Graffiti, he was trying to get the rights to do Flash Gordon. So he finishes THX-138 and he's like, I got to do Flash Gordon. I got to do spaceships and, I don't know, lion people or something. Right? Because George and, George and Marsha were in New York City. This is in Rinsler's making of Star Wars book. They were in New York City with Francis Coppola, who was location shooting for The Godfather to repay his debt to Warner Brothers because of THX-1138. And while in Manhattan, George Lucas took the opportunity to explore deal possibilities, yeah, looking into making a movie based on Flash Gordon. But the people that held the rights to Flash Gordon didn't want this weird kid with glasses to make it, and they wanted Fellini to make a Flash Gordon movie. So George Lucas is young and broke, married to Marsha, and he's like, I got to do something. To get, I got to pay some bills. And what is it is Marsha and Francis Coppola who challenged Lucas after the inhuman weirdness of THX 138 to do something what warm and cuddly, I think is one of the quotes that's thrown around. Yeah, and I like. I think talking about that time, Lucas talks about himself and says, "After THX, I was considered a cold, weird director, a science fiction sort of guy who carried a calculator, and I'm not like that at all." Well, <laughs> yeah. I've never seen George Lucas with a calculator, but you know, he's he does have a cell phone in his uh, pocket protector pocket, you know, easily accessible. So it's kind of like a calculator. Uh, but the thing, yeah, I. A love about the beginnings of American Graffiti is just right from the beginning, Lucas didn't want to have to write it because he doesn't want to have to write anything. And he tried so many different ways to get other people to write it that kind of all backfired. 
Yeah, because he we we can do something warm and cuddly, and he's like, "Well, maybe I'll just make something about my youth and cruising," which makes total sense. Like, write what you know, and he picked something very close to his heart with growing up in California and cruising. After I finished THX, I was very uh, didn't quite know what to do. Francis had challenged me to do something warm and fuzzy. I was very much advising that George focus on writing and, and that you know that he no doubt had the talent to write and, and that ultimately it was all in the, the vision and the script and uh, that he could uh, write something uh, and make a film that would have a strong uh, audience enjoyment as part of it. So he sat down and, uh, and wrote American Graffiti. Well, he ended up with an 18-page kind of outline proposal that he shopped around. United Artists, uh, specifically David Picker, uh, saw some potential in it and gave Lucas, I think, $10,000 to write the script. In the cinema of George Lucas books, it says Picker was intrigued by American Graffiti and his yet untitled science fantasy project. So it was always a two. It was like, I got to make I got to make my cruising movie and my space movie. But I love that. Yeah, Lucas basically he was working with Gary Kurtz at the time. Uh, he had already brought Kurtz along. And I think Lucas and Marsha headed to France for uh, THX was going to be at the was that the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. And with uh, with Walter Murch, too. Well, and then there was a uh, like special event for THX because the French loved it, and Lucas didn't come because no one told him about it, and everyone <laughs> thought that he was just had an ego and didn't want to come, but really he didn't even know that they were having a thing. But yeah, so because Lucas went away uh, to that, and I think they went like touring, uh, backpacking through Europe for a few weeks afterwards. While he was gone, Kurtz, well, yeah, was talking to Richard Walter. Uh, who was going to write uh, the script. He was an old friend of, uh, I think, Kurtz from USC. Yeah, because Kurtz had told Walter to pay no attention to these pages. Basically, he gave him Lucas's outline, said, don't worry about it. So Walter thought he had free reign and was going to base the movie on his novel he'd already written called Barry and the Persuasions. And Kurtz apparently was smart enough to tell him that that was a bad idea. But Kurtz had promised Walter all of the money. And when Lucas got back, he read the script, of course, hated it. And he says, you know, it was completely different than the original treatment. My intense desire to get a writer had backfired on me. And I ended up with an unusable script and no money. So he's back, he's broke, and he has no script still. And Lucas was telling United Artists that to make this movie, he needed 75, he had a list of 75 songs. He said to, to United Artists that the movie basically is a music montage with no characters. <laughs> and by this point, United Artists is just like, you know what, we're not going to make that science fiction movie that you want to do. Probably a big mistake. But then also this time, too, Lucas was getting offers to do other movies, which is kind of interesting, even after the failure of THX 1138. It, it seems like it had to be like word got out that he was trying to do some sort of musical thing because, yeah, he was getting offers to do the Who's Tommy movie. 
the, the musical Hair. And I think there's a quote with Lucas saying how he was like, you know, he was the guy who could make movies with no story or something. So like people were trying to make get him to make movies about record albums, which is crazy to think of like an alternate universe where George Lucas was just the guy who made music movies. And, you know, who knows, maybe he would have made 20 just rock and roll movies based on other people's albums. I don't know. I mean, in the end, American Graffiti is kind of that, but just a little bit different. You could just go watch Xanadu and well, pretend that that's a George Lucas movie. Worse things to do than a, than just watching Xanadu. That's not a bad night. The Apple. Go, go and watch The yeah. Apple and pretend that that's the, the George Lucas music movie that never happened. In 1994, the world is controlled by one power. is success. There ain't no pride! There ain't no shame! So somehow in this time, though, enter Willard Hike and Gloria Katz, who knew Lucas already. Those names are very familiar to everyone listening because they later wrote huge chunks of A New Hope. They wrote Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Radioland Murders. Yeah, because at that point... George basically had to suck it up and write the script himself and at that point pass it off to to his friends there to kind of, I think in the end, basically rewrite all the dialogue. I think he said in the end that the, you know, the, 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 the scenes and story were his, but all the dialogue were Willard and, and Gloria's, which kind of makes sense watching the movie because the people talk very human and are very charming and funny, which isn't always, isn't always the, the George Lucas touch when people are talking. In the annotated screenplays book for star Wars does a great job of breaking down that original screenplay for the original star Wars film and kind of telling you, this is when the hikes come in. Like pretty much as soon as they get to the death star, and people suddenly start talking like human beings in the middle of the movie. That's the work of the hikes, which I always love that when the prequels came out and people were like, I missed the snappy dialogue and that George Lucas, what happened to him? And it's like, well, he didn't write that dialogue. That was the hikes. And if you watch the, the other parts in a new hope and watch the Phantom Menace of the prequels or something, they're kind of pretty similar. Yeah. Watch THX. So enter Universal Pictures, where their head of the studio at the time, this guy Ned Talon, was, they said that he was prepared to kind of nurture independent talent at Universal at that time. The Cinema of George Lucas book talks about how he had a centric taste, and he kind of got on board the American Graffiti Project and kind of supported it. And there's there's a cool story where they're they're talking about how they wanted a a name attached to the movie, and George Lucas Young is like, no, 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 we don't want to cast any stars. And so I went back to Francis, and I said, Francis, they want a name. And he had just finished shooting The Godfather and was about to come out, and um, so the talk was really high on it. And I said, Would you like to produce this for me because I need a name? Well, I believed in uh, American Graffiti from the moment I read it and uh, thought it was very funny and very warm, and I said, of course. So we went 
back to Universal. I said, well, what about Francis? Would he be a big enough name for you? And they said, oh, yeah, great. You got Francis. You got the deal. So I got the deal, and we started casting, and we started making, getting ready to make the movie. And I said, Well, and it's interesting, too, though, at that point, after the kind of collapse of a American Zoetrope, that Coppola and Lucas weren't necessarily on the best of terms, and it was kind of a last resort for Lucas to bring Coppola in, which kind of their relationship will kind of flip back to being friends by the end of the movie and then flip again back to being a little annoyed with each other over the course of uh, the making of the film. We're getting into the stage of casting the movie, and it was Lucas and this guy Fred Roos who did most of the casting. Lucas did a lot of the interviews. But it's one thing that I think all George Lucas productions have in common incredible casting and it's another thing that i think is not talked about enough whether it's american graffiti or it's star wars or it's raiders of the lost ark the absolute perfect actors for these roles american graffiti is so good with the people that are playing these roles like when you watch it now and it's like Ron Howard and Cindy Williams, who went on to do, you know, Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, they just feel at home in this, even though it's 1962, this kind of this kind of late 50s, early 60s world. Yeah, but at the time, other than Ron Howard kind of being known as a as a child on Andy Griffith's show, like these were kind of very early, if not the first roles for some of these actors, and they kind of were not too far older than the characters they're playing. So it it really does kind of feel like real high school kids. And it's not really, you know, there's not a star of American graffiti. It's, it's very much an, an ensemble and there's just a lot of characters and they all kind of get a lot of screen time. And so they start filming it all at night, which was quite a challenge with, Lighting. There's a lot of stories with getting the lighting right for filming at night for young little George Lucas in his second feature film. Yeah, well, they talk about how when he started filming the movie, because they were, I mean, they were filming on location with natural light. I mean, they were using, they were just filming on streets. The other issue was that George had envisioned shooting the entire film with two cameras and without having a director of photography, and just he got two good cameramen and basically said, you know, you each shoot what the actors are doing and get what you can. And the first week we started shooting, I was shooting at very, very low light levels. I wanted to shoot this without much light, with just just little tiny bits of light. And the operators we're both looking, saying, you know, we can't hold focus because the depth of field is like six inches. So every time the actor moves, it goes out of focus and we can't follow it fast enough because it's just too shallow. At those low light levels, most of the stuff was out of focus. And uh, I, as a producer, I remember I was in a, in a hospital at that time with some sort of back problem and I was worried. And so finally I gave in and said, well, okay, we, maybe we need to shoot this with a little bit more light. And Lucas had to bring in his his friend uh, Haskell Wexler, and Haskell basically kind of saved the production by figuring out how to 
get the lighting to work, basically going around the town, replacing the light bulbs and the street lights uh, to be brighter lights and, you know, mounting lights in the, in the cars so that to kind of brighten up the characters faces. So you could kind of see what was going on in the cars and kind of the work he was able to do basically made filming at night just on the streets actually work and kind of gave the movie its kind of signature look. Yeah. A lot of people always talk about the, that the movie looks like a jukebox. It's neon colors and bright, bright lights. And yeah, a lot of that is uh Wexler, like you said, coming in and saving the day. Yeah. There's a great quote about that where um, it says, you know, Lucas had instructed Wexler that he wanted American graffiti to look like a jukebox very garish, bright blue and yellow and red, or ugly, muttered Marsha. <laughs> Marsha Lucas. <laughs> Love her. She's the best. Keeping it real. <laughs> A lot of people talk about the look of the film as one of the defining things in it, but also, like we said, one of the things that people always go back to with American Graffiti is the cars. And the cars are a big deal in the movie. Like I remember when they had the 50th anniversary screening at Lucasfilm this year, and they had the whole parking lot at Lucasfilm filled with, you know, these late fifties, early sixties kind of hot rods and stuff, which is super cool. But and also if you want to get deep with it and you think of the cars as characters in the film or the cars almost representing the the characters in the film i mean you think of the important role that vehicles or things play in star wars especially the original film you think of the importance of the x-wing and the the amount of time that went into designing every little thing in star wars darth vader's tie fighter the tie fighter lightsabers the importance of things it should be obvious at this point but it always kind of goes back to just how much lucas really likes cars and american graffiti is like the movie where it's all about cars and and we kind of just think about him being into spaceships which he is but like even uh you know going back to the the, the part of the story where he went to con film festival and like they you know went around Europe for a few weeks, like while they were in Europe, like they went to a bunch of car races. <laughs> so, you know, from the very beginning, like that's what he's into. He's into cars and machines and speed. And that's all here in American Graffiti. But it's even in the new shows, even in the, the Disney Plus stuff. Spaceships in Star Wars are not like, you know, the Starship Enterprise or something. They start like you're starting a car. Somebody hops in the seat and they flip a couple switches and you go. Well, it, you know, and this is a good time to bring up too. It's like the mods in Book of Boba, you know, as much as people are, can be annoyed by those. Like if anything, that's like the most American graffiti we've gotten in Star Wars. Like they're straight out of American graffiti. Yeah. When Toad shows up, the first time you see him in the like first minute of American graffiti, he comes riding in on a little moped. Yeah. Yes. So make fun of the mods all you want, people, but it's it's George Lucas with a capital G and a capital L. So the, the original cut of American Graffiti is three hours, and 
a real challenge, like you said, to, to edit that three-hour version down. And the biggest thing, we talked about Walter Murch earlier and the comparisons with Murch and Ben Burt. And originally, Lucas wanted Walter Murch to do Star Wars, and it was Murch who recommended Burt for the job, and the rest is history. But just like in THX, the soundscapes in American Graffiti are really kind of insane. And I I kind of want to watch this movie just with headphones on, I'm like with my eyes closed, like one of those kind of situations. Because it really is, like, the work Walter Murch did, it's really kind of wild. Yeah, it's really cool how I think they say they basically, they you know, they they took the music and they would record it a bunch of different ways to get the, what are they, the world eyes effect so they would you know play it through speakers in a gymnasium i think there's a time where they were you know george lucas was walking around the yard with a speaker and they were recording that so it was just you know the the different phasing of the speaker moving around the yard and facing different directions and doing all these things to make it sound like the music is actually somewhere in the environment and then taking those kind of processed versions and then editing, editing them to go with the visuals and, you know, the different songs kind of were picked to be emotionally relevant to the different scenes. And then the whole idea of, of bringing in Wolfman Jack and Wolfman Jack actually recording a radio show to have the little bits and things between the songs and kind of the idea that the entire soundtrack of the movie is just the radio station is on the whole movie, just playing songs and, and Wolfman Jack bits is, yeah, it's kind of insane when you think about it. Like we said, how it it's, might as well be a science fiction film at this point if, if you didn't, you know, if you weren't there in 62. But Walter Murch's worldizing soundscape and sound work that he did in this puts you in that world. And then, you know, I think of the cantina in Star Wars, where it's, if you watch the cantina scene in Star Wars and you compare it to the school dance in American Graffiti, where it's like, here's the band, the band's loud and clear, and then we're going to go somewhere else and the band is still playing. It's just part of the soundtrack of that world. play a clip here from American Graffiti just a random clip that is just like we said just listen don't do it if you're driving if you're driving keep your eyes open but if you're somewhere where you can close your eyes just appreciate the weirdness of this worldizing Walter Murch genius sound clip Hey, you're new around here. Where are you from? Perlock. Perlock. 
guy named Frank Bartlett? No, does he go to Turlock High? Well, he used to. He goes to JC now. Do you go to JC? Yeah, sure. Oh, wow. Do you know Guy Phillips? Yeah, sure. I got him in a class. Oh, he's so boss. How'd you like to ride around with me for a while? I'm sorry, I can't. I'm going steady. Oh, come on. I just can't. You're just riding around with a bunch of girls. So the movie is finally done. Nobody really knows what to expect. It has the infamous first screening, which is not, it's like on one hand, it goes great. Like the crowd goes nuts and Lucas is there and Coppola is there and people from Universal Studios are there. But the, the studio brass does not love it at all. Yeah, because... By all accounts, the the audience went nuts and loved the movie, but Ned Tannen, the uh, executive from the studio, who apparently was in a bad mood before the movie started even, basically hated it, said it was terrible, said maybe they would release it as a TV movie. Yeah, in the Cinema of George Lucas book. It says, Lucas, Kurtz, and Coppola were delighted. Their enthusiasm was seemingly shared by everyone in the auditorium, except everyone except for Ned Tannen, who was furious at what he'd seen and said as much. He has felt major revisions were required to bring the film to the standard he expected. An appalled Lucas stood in the auditorium as people filed past, overwhelmed by the feeling that history was repeating itself because famously... Warner Brothers recut THS one and three eight said the exact same thing. Like you can't show this to audiences, which is crazy because THX one three eight one one three eight. I'm like, eh, I get it, but American Graffiti. It's like, it's about people. It's on Earth. Lucas was a loss for words, it says, but Coppola was not. We became aware of a lot of people standing at the back, and Francis was hysterically tearing at his clothes said Matthew Robbins, friend of theirs. It was a terrible scene. So Coppola, according to all the legend, just started unloading on Ned Tannen. And Coppola, according to some people, whipped out a checkbook and said, I'll buy the movie off you right now. I'll take, I'll distribute it myself. I'll get rid of it for you. So thankfully, with the the kind of clout that Francis Coppola had at that time, though, they did more and more and more screenings with audiences of the movie to with the universal executives. And they're like, maybe you don't get it, but every time we show this movie, the crowd goes nuts. Like crowds are loving this movie. And eventually kind of what universal sheepishly was kind of like, Oh, okay, we'll put this out. And they put it out in August. Like we said, kind of the tail end of the summer. And it's interesting hearing Lucas talk about the eventual box office success of American Graffiti, because it wasn't like Star Wars, where it was a phenomenon right away. American Graffiti took time and weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months to grow. In those days, making maybe $20 million now, that's sort of the lower end of having a hit, 20 million. If it's below 20, forget it. You're not going to go anywhere. It would have made about 20, a little over 20 the first week. Second week, it made 22. Third week, it made 25. And it just kept, and it went for a whole year. 
It stayed in the theaters for an entire year, and it never dropped. Yeah. So for a $700,000 investment, they made a $100 million return. <laughs> and then by the time you get to award season, it's nominated for Best Picture. George Lucas is nominated for Best Director, Best Writer. It wins Best, like, what is it, Comedy or Musical, whatever, at the Golden Globes. It kicks off a wave of this kind of 50s nostalgia there in the mid 70s like with happy days was a pilot that just sat around at the the what, abc tv or something nobody's like nobody wants to watch some sitcom about the 50s and then suddenly after the success of american graffiti people are like that happy days pilot get that running get ron howard in it <laughs> and like we said the big thing is once the movie started making actual money, Lucas used his earnings from American Graffiti to purchase Lucasfilm's first official headquarters, as well as having the means to bankroll what will become Industrial Light and Magic for his little space movie that he started writing right after American Graffiti. And at one of the screenings of American Graffiti was Alan Ladd Jr., who absolutely loved the movie and what famously said that he didn't know quite what Lucas was planning with his space movie, but Alan Ladd Jr. said he wanted to be in the George Lucas business. And as we all know, if it wasn't for that support from Alan Ladd Jr., the same thing could have happened to Star Wars, where Star Wars could have gotten shut down or could have gotten taken away from him or re-edited or something. But with Alan Ladd Jr. in his corner, Star Wars happened. But, I mean, the, the other part of all this from American Graffiti, though, is, you know, even though the movie was a big hit before it came out, he, Lucas was forced to cut a little bit for the studio. So American Graffiti was kind of another step in reiterating to Lucas that he doesn't want anything to do with the studios. And as soon as he can be a independent filmmaker, he will be. And star Wars was kind of the, the third strike at that point, which kind of led to him kind of completely as much as possible moving away from the big studios for empire strikes back. Well, and you know, American graffiti because it's George Lucas had, re-releases and changes and versions <laughs> it's kind of the the original original special edition yeah because the original release had those studio mandated cuts which they put back in for the because it was re-released in 78 so those scenes i think were the u the used car lot sequence with uh the, the car salesman in the giant chair, maybe for, foreshadowing Lucas's future giant chair. That was one of the scenes that was cut. Uh, and the kind of weird scene of Bob Falfa singing to, uh, to Lori in the car. Yes. Some enchanted evening. Yeah. Um, but the craziest one is they changed the date that John Milner was killed in the final credits, potentially because of more American graffiti. 
boy, American, you think American graffiti is weird. Go watch more American graffiti. <laughs> or join the Blast Points Army Patreon to hear our whole episode about more American graffiti. Also, the 78 version was the first time the movie was in stereo. Wow. Which is kind of crazy to think about because for how kind of in the world the audio mix is, the original release was was that, but in mono. And then what, 20, 20 years later, the 98 was the first time it came out on DVD with, guess what, more changes. Yeah, they they changed the uh, the sky in the beginning during the credits from being just kind of a flat tone sunset gray sky to having like clouds and stuff. And then it also got the green Lucasfilm logo because the original release, I think it's just like a white Lucasfilm logo. So that, you know, George Lucas has always been like this. Well, and there's the the brand new Blu-ray where when this episode comes out, I think it just came out the week before, which is very controversial with, guess what? Even more changes. <laughs> A lot of changes to the audio mix and stuff. So George Lucas is going to George Lucas. The neat thing aside from Star Wars is the influence of American graffiti can be felt in a lot of modern films. Quentin Tarantino is a huge fan of American graffiti and watching it this week, I couldn't help comparing it to once upon a time in Hollywood in a lot of ways with overlapping storylines and kind of just watching these people go through their lives in California and kind of the romance of a certain time period that doesn't exist anymore and kind of a melancholy kind of tone to it i mean paul thomas anderson's licorice pizza i think you could say the same thing he famously kind of did a, a riff on the the green lucasfilm intro in the beginning of that movie it's a lot of american graffiti love out there yeah and if you've never watched it it's definitely worth your time uh whether you're into the 50s or not it's a uh... It's a cool movie. Kind of closing things out, there's a there's a quote from George Lucas at the time of making the movie, who himself was still in his 20s. And you can read this quote and very much think of Star Wars also and think of all Star Wars. The film is about teenagers moving forward and making decisions about what they want to do in life. But it's also about the fact that you can't live in the past which is part of the same idea. You have to move forward. Things can't stay the same. Essentially, that's the point of the film. And that's why he changes it on every home video release. <laughs> it's the point of the movie. It can't be the same. <laughs> you can't live in the past. You got to keep moving forward. Maybe maybe Greedo's going to say McClunky. I don't know. Herbie and the Heartbeats are going to sing Louie Louie, and maybe they won't. I hope they do. I really do. Then um, 
uh, I used that opportunity to um, uh, secure my position with the film I had been working on, which was Star Wars. And um, I had made a deal with the studio. They expected me to come back and suddenly ask for more money because I was the hottest director in Hollywood. And I didn't do that. What I did is I was very concerned that they... Uh, by this time, I had written uh, a very long script, and I had been forced, really, to, rather than do a six-hour, convince them to do a six-hour movie, which I knew they weren't going to do. Uh, I came to the reality that I was going to have to cut this into three pieces and do the first two hours, uh, and then hope somehow, some way, I'd get the other, two, the other four hours made. Uh, but in order to do that, I sort of managed to get the sequel rights and uh, licensing rights and all the other things for the film so that I could make enough money or promote the film with the licensing and everything to make the film successful enough to where I could get the next one made, which is all I was worried about at that point was to be able to get all three of these films made, which at the time seemed impossible. You know, it just didn't seem like anybody would ever... Yeah, we expected the first film not to do that well, and so you're constantly on the defensive. You're constantly trying to say, well, uh, if this one doesn't do well, how am I going to get the next one made? And um, as it turned out, the film was successful. I didn't need that, but what that gave me was a chance at independence uh, after Star Wars came out, and I looked at it, and I said, uh, I have a chance now to become really independent from the system, the studio system. I don't have to go to them for the money. I don't have to go to them for permission. I don't have to do anything. I'm going to set myself up now using the profits from Star Wars to build a company completely independent up here in San Francisco. And that's what I did. That's why I stopped directing at that point. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. Guess what? Apple Podcast Reviews. You've never heard us talk about this before, ever, in any episode of Blast Points. So, after you get done listening to this episode, you should go over there, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, and write a little review, leave, leave us five stars. So then, if you do that, more people can find Blast Points when they're looking for a Star Wars podcast. And then they can say, these guys are talking about American Graffiti. I wanted to hear about lightsaber poses. We're not talking about enough about lightsaber forms. <laughs> if American Graffiti was a Jedi, what lightsaber form would it use? So, and if you listen on Spotify, leave a five-star review over there so the same thing can happen. And check out our website, blastpointspodcast.com, where you can search for everything that's not American Graffiti, if that's what you're into. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, make sure you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you're on Facebook, make sure you're part of the Blast Points Super Chill Group. 
And we got the Blast Points Army on Patreon, where we're going to have a Dial of Destiny commentary coming in December. Fun stuff over there. And if you are listening to this and you are a member of the Blast Points Army on Patreon, hey, thank you so much for your continuing support. It really means the world to us. But that wraps up 381, 50 years of American graffiti. We rocked all the way around the clock, and we finally got around the clock to start on an American graffiti episode, and now we're done. So thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, everybody. We'll, we'll talk to you. We'll be back next week with another new episode. So until then, thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you. I just needed to make sure we talked about the big chair, so we got that in. May the force be with you! Ah!